want to uh, talk a little bit about um, the art of neighboring. And I um, got that from this book that I've been reading, uh, The Art of Neighboring, Building Genuine Relationships Right Outside Your Door, uh, written by two pastors, Jay Pack Hack and Dave Runyon. And I've been thinking lately about how the world has changed um, in not so many years. I was thinking about the street I grew up on, and I was telling somebody that it was considered an act of rudeness to keep your garage door closed. <laughs> because the way all the houses were built on our street, it, it, well, it, only strangers came to your front door. Your neighbors came to the kitchen door and all the houses were built in such a way that you had to go through the garage door to get to the kitchen door. And uh, which drove my mother a little bit crazy. We didn't have air conditioning, so we had screen doors and the neighbors would come over and be looking in the screen door to see what we were doing. <clears throat> now, you know, we all have garage door openers and we just kind of hit that button when we're a half a block down the street and zip into the garage and close the garage door and I, I don't even see my neighbors and much less get to know them and vice versa. The art of neighboring. Just, just, just that we're to the point where we're using uh, neighbor as a verb now may tell you a lot. I, I want to... I start with three assumptions, which are going to seem very obvious, but um, I just want us to get this. Uh, first of all, all of us here have neighbors. Uh, maybe you live on a ranch in three sections of land, but you still have neighbors, uh, which means you're a neighbor to someone else. So you're somebody else's neighbor. Uh, I'm going to assume that at least members of this congregation uh, that our desire is to live our lives as Christians, that we're striving to live a good, worthy Christian life uh, that would be pleasing to Jesus. And my third assumption is that your neighbors are different from you, and you're different from them. Now, maybe you get along. Maybe they're Christian. Maybe they're not Christian. Uh, maybe they're great neighbors. Maybe you don't know who they are hardly. Uh, but I promise you, they're different which then that creates the challenge. I was thinking years ago, we had sort of a back fence neighbor and she was a member of our church. She was very generous. She, she was very kind to us in certain ways. She was also just a little crazy sometimes and could drive us a little crazy sometimes. Um, so uh, she was a wonderful person. We were different. And sometimes that created some schedule, some uh, challenges. Well, uh, so then that leads me to the question, what kind of neighbor are we supposed to be? And particularly as Christians, what kind of neighbor are we supposed to be? And should it make a difference? Does it make a difference? So, um, I'm sort of guessing you're already getting uncomfortable with this. Um, or at least the first service was. Nobody would talk to me after that service. <laughs> And it may have been just a terrible sermon, who knows, but um, it's sort of getting into our business, right? Right? Preacher, don't be, don't, don't be talking about how we're supposed to treat our neighbors. You don't know who my neighbors are. Can't you just leave us alone? No, I can't. It's my job <laughs> to mess with you. 
The Art of Neighboring. Now, the way this book came to be was uh, one of the co-authors was living in the Denver area, and he brought together uh, over 20 pastors from all these different churches uh, with the object of answering this question, how can the churches best work together to serve our city? And so they got together, and as many of you know how this goes, they talked about the different issues, uh, at-risk kids, lack of affordable housing, drug and alcohol abuse, elderly shut-ins, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds familiar, right? And then they began to think, what, what kind of programs do we need? How can we work together to, to eliminate or work on some of these problems? What do we need to do? to make our community a better place. Well, they invited the mayor, uh, and I'm not sure if it was the mayor of Denver or one of the suburbs, but uh, one of the mayors was there. And at a certain point, the mayor said this. He said, the majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of really great neighbors. You hear that? Say it again. The majority of our issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of really good neighbors. And then he, he went on to talk about that. He, he said, you know, when there's a problem, what do we do? We, we call the police. We call the city. We uh, call the schools. We call maybe a charity or the church, and we say, come fix this problem, right? Um, Everything from big to little. The the neighbors aren't taking care of their yard, and it's a disgrace, and it's messing up our real estate values, so we call the city, and they come, and they enforce the code. Or uh, we don't like the, the... the B&B, and they're noisy, and instead of talking to the owner about it, let's just go to the city and get a noise ordinance passed, and then we can call the city, and they can take care of this problem for us. Or we want want our schools to to figure out all the issues that our kids are having. And, And he said, you know, the problem is government and other institutions really aren't that good at solving problems. I mean, they do what they can, but there's only so much they can do. I mean, maybe the kids down the street, you think they're being neglected. You call CPS, you call the police, they come. But what really got solved? What problem really got solved in that kind of a scenario? The mayor said that, excuse me, relationships are much more effective than programs because they're organic and ongoing. And then he said, when neighbors are in relationships with each other, when neighbors know each other and they're in a true relationship with each other, then they take care of each other. The elderly get taken care of. The at-risk kid gets mentored by some dad on the street, et cetera, et cetera. And then they talked about some statistics. He said that when, when neighbors really are in a relationship with one another, people tend to live longer. When, when neighbors know each other in their relationship with one another, the crime rate in that neighborhood t- sometimes goes down by over 60%. That when neighbors know each other in their relationship with each other, well, your neighbors are your first responders in a crisis. 
particularly natural crises or natural disasters. Uh, years ago, Brenda and I were living out in West Texas. This horrific storm came through, blew out all the windows on the west and north side of every building and house in town. And when it was over, we kind of crawled out and we started checking on the neighbors, particularly the widows and, and those living alone. Uh, there's not enough police. There's not enough government to check on every person. Your neighbors are your first responders. And then he went on to say that there seems to be no visible difference between the way Christians and non-Christians treat their neighbors. Ouch. So these two guys, they think, oh my gosh, how embarrassing. The Bible says, and Jesus emphasizes, that we're supposed to love our neighbors. And we're not doing a very good job. So, maybe at this point you're thinking, uh, preacher, we're fine. Uh, I love people. I take care of people. I check on people. I, I, I work on charities. Uh, I care about my community and I'm trying to help my community. Uh, amen. God bless you. But the thing that they push and what I want to push is that maybe Jesus is talking about your literal neighbor. Not just people you know, but literally the people next to you. What would happen if all of us took that literally? To love the people closest to us. Well, in being convicted of all of this, uh, they went to Scripture and... Um, and went naturally, one would think, uh, to the Good Samaritan story, which is all about being a neighbor. And this, this, the, the title itself, I think, uh, is misleading. Uh, we call it the Good Samaritan story. I think a better title would have been uh, the Good Enemy story. Right? What's good about our enemies? Well, that's the point. That's the point. Uh, Jesus uh, and this guy are uh, talking to each other. And the guy asked Jesus a question. He says, what must I do to win eternal life? Now, in the New Testament, that phrase eternal life is kind of a slippery phrase. It's, it's not limited to just going to heaven. It's not, what do I got to do so I can go to heaven? It, it's it's more, much more broadly understood than that. In, in the Old Testament, people understood that you could be alive in your body, but dead to God, dead in your soul. Also, your body could be dead, but you could be alive to God. And so maybe that's sort of getting to it. You know, what do I have to do in order to be fully alive to God, to be fully caught up in the presence of God and his kingdom in such a way that it lasts forever? So then Jesus asks, Jesus answers his question with a question, which is fascinating to me. Jesus says, well, you, you've read the Bible. What do you think? And so he quotes uh, part of the Shema from Deuteronomy. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul, and all your might. And then he connects it with a verse out of Leviticus. Love your neighbor as well as you love yourself. 
and connects those two together. And Jesus says, that's it. That's the answer. You did it. And just that alone is a very interesting thing. That the, the whole Bible, no matter how much you want to get complicated about it and split hairs and, and write 20-volume theological dissertations, it just comes down to love God as best you can and love your neighbor. Wow. So then the, the man says, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And you've probably heard countless sermons criticizing this guy uh, for being so crass. But I, I'm going to defend him for just a moment, okay? I, I don't think that he's that, that far off base that, and that he does what we more or less all do ourselves. First, you have to keep in mind that, that first century Palestine is a very crowded and diverse place, that, that all around you are people who, who there's, there's different languages spoken, there's different ethnic groups, there's different races, there's different nationalities, there's different religions, vastly different religions, vastly different points of view, all crowded together. And the whole Roman Empire was like that. Really, since the end of the Roman Empire, the world has never been that diverse again until really about the 20th century. Um, I was reading that when the World Trade Center buildings came down at 9-11, that there were over 90 different nationalities in that building. That's how diverse that our world has once again become. And so, so you know, the Bible doesn't say be polite to your neighbor. It says love your neighbor. And like Lisa was saying, you might get your hands pretty dirty. You know, your neighbors have problems. And once you start getting involved, guess what? They're becoming your problems, right? You might have to get your hands dirty. I can be polite to anybody, but I might not want to get that involved with just anybody. And so bear in mind that we have something that they didn't have in the first century, which is internet and social media and fast, easy transportation, automobiles. And so what that's allowed me to do is I get to create my own neighborhood. I get to pick and choose who my neighbors are on social media, and I jump in my car and I drive across town to my neighbor's house. I don't have to talk to my literal next door neighbor if I don't want to. Because I can have all the friends I want. I can have all the neighbor, neighbors I want. They just don't have to be next to me. Right? I don't have to go and talk to my next door neighbor about watching my dog for me when I'm out of town. Because I can just call a friend. And maybe the friend lives five miles away, but they'll jump in their car and they'll come over and feed my dog. Right? So... It's an incredible luxury. I get to, I only have to interact with people I like to interact with. I don't have to interact with the neighbor that makes me a little crazy, right? And so, so this guy in the story doesn't have that luxury. He's living next to incredibly different people that he fundamentally disagrees with including sworn enemies like Samaritans. And I think the other dynamic that uh, is common, I, uh, 
I, I've told you many times, I read Dear Abby letters. I read the letters to her. I don't read her responses very often because that makes me crazy. Um, <laughs> but a lot of those letters are, are basically, what is, what is the minimum social obligation here so that I'm not a bad person? I want to be a good person. I don't want to be a bad person. But I, I don't, you, you know, what's the minimum here? You know, the, the grandmother that says, you know, when my, when my grandkids were little, I would send them all cash on their birthdays, but now they're in their 30s and they make more money than I do. Do, do I have to keep sending them money? Huh? Or, uh, you know, we're going to have a party and I'm going to invite everybody from my office, but there's one person in my office that makes all of us crazy. Do I have to invite them to? What's, what's the minimum understanding here that I don't have to feel like I'm a bad person? I want to be a good person. I think that's all this guy's doing. He wants to be a good person. But it's not easy out there. So then Jesus tells this story about, about this uh, Jew who's beaten up and robbed and these other two good Jews who should know better uh, pass him on by. And then the sworn enemy, the Samaritan, stops and has compassion on him, which means the Samaritan is choosing to have compassion on his enemy. And just so this guy gets it, Jesus says, okay, so who's, who's the neighbor in this story? He can't even say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. Yep, that's it, says Jesus. Go and do likewise. The one who shows mercy. So, these guys in this book, they, they talk about that, that showing mercy. And one of them tells a story about a neighbor, their, their yard is a mess, they, they call the city, the city gives them a ticket or something, and then he finds out later that the woman living there, she's got two jobs, I think, going at the same time. She's trying to make money because she's taking care of her mother who has cancer, and the medical bills are rolling up, and oh... I wasn't supposed to call the city. I was supposed to walk across the street and mow her yard. Hmm. Are we supposed to take this scripture literally? And what difference would it make if we did? Now, I think in your bulletin and maybe on the screen is this chart that they put together. Okay, so imagine that you're in the middle. And you're surrounded by these neighbors. Now, maybe you live on a cul-de-sac or out on a ranch, and so the, the geometry doesn't work out quite the same, but you're surrounded by neighbors, okay? So, I don't know if you can see it on there, but on line A, you write down the names of all your neighbors. And then on line B, you write down something you know about them that you would get because you talk to them, Okay? Not that their car is red, but that somehow you know their son is going to college. And then line C, something a little bit more in-depth that you know because you've had conversation with them beyond the superficial, like maybe they grew up in Wisconsin or something like that. Now, they go around do these seminars, and maybe it's mostly urban people. I don't know. Maybe it's different for most of you here. Um, but I know that I couldn't fill out this chart very well at all if I had to. So I'm going to assume at least some of you 
or in that same category. They uh, said that about 10% of the people who do this can fill out all the names of all their neighbors. 10%. This is about 3% can fill out the next line, which is, what do you really know about this person because you talked to them? And then about 1% can do that last thing. He said the objective is to, to do a progression from you see your neighbor and you go, to you see your neighbor and you go, hey, man. You've actually talked to him. You see your neighbor and you go, hi, Mike. You see your neighbor and say, hey, Mike, how's your son doing in college? Hi, Mike, can you come over and help me move something in my garage? Hmm? So, why? Um, why do we have to do that? Again, I'm sure you are helping people right now. Um, but why your next door neighbor? I, uh, first, first reason is it changes your neighborhood and it changes lives. Uh, Ray Altman, uh, Larry Altman's son, Larry used to pastor this church. His son raised a pastor now in Cedar Park. And he said he, he, there was a Hispanic family that moved in across the street and spoke primarily Spanish. And he could tell it was, it was kind of upsetting to the neighbors. And so he baked some cookies and took it over to uh, their house, knocked on the door. The husband answers the door. He said, here, I baked you some cookies. He said, the guy just stared at him for a while. And finally just said, okay, all right. Ray said a couple days later, he noticed somebody mowed his lawn for him. And it progressed from there. They got to know each other. The kids began to play with each other. It changed attitudes on the street, transformed their street. Can a batch of cookies change the world? Second reason is uh, Ray, in presenting this at a seminar a while back, he said, you know, the, the world does a lot of things really well that the churches usually don't do very well, like entertainment. He says, you're never going to beat the world at entertainment. The church is never going to be more interesting than Netflix or Disney World, okay? Uh, the world is always a lot better organized than the church, amen, okay? <laughs> they know, the world knows how to get organized. We churches, sometimes we do it. Most of the time, it's a room full of cats. Uh, I could go on and on, but, but he says what churches are really good at, what churches knock out of the park compared to the world is we're really good at relationships, we're, we're really good at forgiveness. We're really good at grace. We're really good at second chances and unconditional love. We, we, we're like Zen masters of those kinds of things in the way that the world doesn't get at all. Those Dear Abby letters, if you're a Christian, the answer to nearly every one of those letters is yes. Yes, I got to do the hard thing. Yes, I got to love this unlovable person. Yes, I got to hang in there with this friendship. Yes, yes. Rats, yes. <laughs> but here's how I really want to push this, is, is not to guilt you into a should, but a blessing of gratitude to share. Because I'm, I'm, I'm going to suppose that pretty much everybody here, at least once in your life, you had a Samaritan come to your rescue. 
you had someone that maybe you didn't like, someone you disagreed with, someone that maybe had hurt you, and they of all people were the one and came and blessed you in such an unexpected way. I have a, a Methodist pastor a colleague in Austin. He, his theology and my theology couldn't be more different. I, and just to be perfectly honest, what he does, I, I don't really consider it to be Christian. Okay, it's religious. It doesn't seem Christian to me at all. And we've, we've argued about this. But about five years ago, I had to have a heart procedure. I'm at Austin Heart Hospital at 7 in the morning. I'm sitting in, in uh, pre-op. And of all my pastor friends all over the Austin area, who's the one guy that walked in? Who's the one guy that got up at 6 in the morning, drove down to the hospital, and sat beside me and prayed with me was this guy who was willing to cross the invisible line and love me as he would desire to be loved. Bear also finally that this is not an evangelism program. This is not how to get your neighbors to come to church. Maybe they all have a church, amen? This is not how you go and get people to come to this church. This is, you might really, really nail this and not a single one of these will come and join our church. This is about how you can become incredibly useful to God. You put this on your refrigerator. You start working this because maybe you might just assume that you live where you live because God needs you there. That maybe what seemed random or accidental or coincidental is not. That maybe you thought you chose to live there and you did, but maybe God really chose that place for you. And there's somebody there that needs you. And one of these days you're going to need them. And this is how eternal life gets worked out. We love God. We love our neighbor because we've been loved ourselves.